Hello, hello. Welcome to episode nine of Words with Writers podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Canadian Authors Association, Toronto Branch. We are a membership-based organization for writers in all levels, areas, and genres of the writing profession. We are your hosts, Chris Gorman. And Brandy Tanner. Thank you for joining us for our ninth episode. Now, today's going to be a little different than our previous episodes. We're still going to bring you the usual content you know and love, starting with an overview of Canadian Authors Toronto events and some upcoming writing contests. But then we've switched it up a bit. And instead of one short reading and one longer interview, we have three members with us today, each joining us for a reading and a brief conversation about their work. Each of the three members will give us a five-minute reading from their work and then join us for a quick chat to get to know them a little bit better. Shauna Klinning will start us off by reading from her work in progress, followed by Anne Shortell with an excerpt from Celtic Knot, A Clara Swift Tale. And then Nancy Jo Cullen will end our member reading section with her 2020 Fred Kerner Book Award shortlisted novel, the Western Alienation Merit Badge. Awesome. Three readings for the price of one. And even better, the price is free. And after our talented guests, we will end today's show with news from our members. So let's get this reading party started. Absolutely, Brandy. But just before we do that, I wanted to have a quick word about our December events. As with pretty much everybody we know, a year into this pandemic, and we're all running a little bit low on steam. I know this week I had planned on making some excellent progress on my next book, but instead I basically had supper and then crawled into bed at a ridiculously early hour every night. (laughs) And I know I'm not alone in that feeling. I'm with you there, Chris. Yeah. So in December, we had a nice and relaxing virtual pub night, which gave writers a chance to come together and talk about their books, their work in progress, and meet each other in a nice, no-pressure atmosphere. As Chris said, you wonderful listeners out there probably feeling some Zoom fatigue after nearly a year of these virtual events. So to combat this, for the next few months, we're just planning the casual open mic and community night events so we can share stories and get to know each other in a more relaxed atmosphere. So stay tuned to our event calendar at canadianauthors.org slash toronto slash events for details on our February community night. So Brandy, I think that brings us to the writing contests. Do we have any awesome opportunities coming up? We sure do, Chris. Uh, There's lots of great contests going on right now. I'll start with a poetry competition. The ARC Poetry Magazine Poem of the Year Contest offers a grand prize of $5,000 and an honorable mention of $500 for the best submitted poem not exceeding 100 lines. Entrants may submit up to two unpublished poems for a $35 fee and $5 for each extra poem by the deadline of February 1st. For our self-published or small press authors out there, you can consider entering the 2021 Next Generation Indie Book Awards. 
This is the largest international awards program open to indie authors and independent publishers worldwide who have a book written in English, released, and with a copyright date in 2019, 2020, or 2021. There are over 70 categories with finalist medals awarded to up to five finalists in each category and lots of cash prizes ranging from $100 to $1,500. The early bird special entry fee is $75 for the entry of one title in up to two categories if submitted by February 12th. And finally, for our nonfiction writers, the CBC Nonfiction Prize is open until February 28th. Open to all citizens and permanent residents of Canada, you can submit your original, unpublished works of nonfiction, up to 2,000 words, along with the $25 entry fee, for the chance to win the grand prize of $6,000 and a 10-day writing residency at the Banff Centre for Arts and Creativity. Four finalists will receive $1,000 each, and all winning stories will be published on CBC Books. Thanks, Brandy. They all sound amazing. We also want to give our listeners a quick reminder of our current Canadian Author Association's contests, which we detailed on the last episode. The Canadian Authors Niagara Short Story Contest closes January 31st for fiction, nonfiction, historical fiction, or creative nonfiction stories that are no more than 3,000 words. And lastly, all Canadian Author Association members with a book published in 2020 are encouraged to enter the 2021 Fred Kerner Book Award. You must submit four copies of the book, a completed entry form, and the entry fee of $30 per title entered. All entries must be postmarked on or before March 1st for the chance to win $400 and a one-year complimentary membership with Canadian Authors Association. You can see complete details of all of these contests and more at canadianauthors.org slash national slash links slash awards dash competitions. Some great opportunities there, Chris. And that concludes the event and contest portion of our show. So prepare to be intrigued and entertained by this month's guests. And a quick disclaimer for the reading from Nancy Jo Cullen, there is a little bit of colorful language in that particular reading. So if you'd rather not hear that part of it, just a a little warning for you. Nothing major, but like I say, just a little bit of colorful language in there. Okay, so please get cozy, get comfy, and here we go. As we mentioned earlier, this month we are trying something a little bit different, and as part of that, we're introducing a theme to our monthly podcasts. For January, our theme is historical fiction. Our first guest today is Shauna Klinning. 
Shauna was raised in Oakville, Ontario. She has stayed close to her roots and raised her own family there. Shauna is a librarian by trade, but turned her hand to writing a number of years ago. She worked for the Oakville Public Library as both the Youth Services Librarian and as a branch manager, and is the recipient of the Ontario Library Association's 2006 Youth Services Librarian of the Year Award. Most recently, she worked as a special project researcher at Sheridan College. Some short stories of Shauna's have appeared in The Globe and Mail and in some online magazines. She was also a semi-finalist in the 2018 John Kenneth Galbraith Short Story Competition. Her love, though, is historical fiction. Currently, Shauna is working on her fourth novel, tentatively entitled Chasing You, Mommy. It is a story of hope, redemption, and rediscovering the flavors of life in post-World War II America. Welcome to the show, Shauna. Thank you. I am very happy to be here. Well, we're very happy to have you. So you're going to be reading to us today from a work in progress that is just about ready to go for edits. Could you tell us a little bit about the work? Sure. So uh, my story is called Chasing Umami. It takes place in the first few years after World War II. Um, I think it's probably good for your listeners if because not everybody knows what umami is. So umami is the what's called the fifth taste. And so that's outside of sweetness, saltiness, bitterness, and sourness. And it's considered to be the depth of flavor or what makes a food satisfying to you, like when you eat a fatty steak, why you why you love that, why it resonates inside. It's usually associated with Asian foods like broth or soy sauce. In the past few years, there's been a lot of talk about the umami of wine or chocolate. I just want people to know that so they have a reference what umami is when I say chasing umami. So I'm glad you say that because I only like probably within the last few years discovered what that word meant. So yeah, <laughs> and, you know, and I've belonged to a lot of writing groups and, and um, people like, I don't know what you're talking about. So anyway, so that's the basis. So the novel Chasing a Mommy takes place, as I said, in the first few years after World War II. Momoru Tanabe, uh, my main uh, character, is the Niju Hubakusha which is a Japanese term for a survivor of both atomic bombs. Momoru survives the bombing of Hiroshima only to lose his wife and child in the bombing of Nagasaki. He's desperate to hang on to their memories. He remembers the taste and scent of umami in his late wife's cooking. And it seems to him that taste and scent remember love. Momoru mistakenly believes that by brewing shoyu, which is uh, the traditional Japanese soy sauce, he can recreate umami and thereby hang on to the fading memories of his dead wife and child. When a letter arrives from distant relatives in Oregon asking him to join them, he packs his bags. There's nothing left for him in Nagasaki. Perhaps he thinks he can find umami in America. My second character is Catherine Rado, and she's a pregnant Hungarian ballerina whose husband is killed by the Soviets in post-war Budapest. And she's forced to flee her city for the safety of her unborn child. Catherine finds herself living and working on a vineyard in Oregon, but feels trapped by the person she's let herself become. When Momoru appears to ask for help with fermentation and creating umami, Catherine senses a way back to who she once was. 
She hopes that by helping him, she too can reawaken memories of love. So Chasing a Mommy, I hope, so my hope is a story of hope, redemption, and rediscovering the flavors of life. Wow, that's a really fascinating approach to a, a very tough subject. And I can hear your dog. Are you hear my dog in the background? Yeah. <laughs> it's not a problem. Um, I mean, everybody, all of our listeners know that we're doing this remotely from home. Once in a while, you'll hear my cat or, you know, so yeah. no problem. What's your dog's name? Whiskey. Whiskey. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> I didn't name her. My husband named her. <laughs> well, I like it, but my name's Brandy. So. Yeah, right. Well, there you go. It's a different code. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, so could you tell us a little about what drove you to write this? Um, so it is kind of a complicated round, circuitous route to how I came to it. So I... Um, well, I, I read and I write historical fiction, but back in about, it was about 2010, back in 2020, I just happened to fall upon a, an obituary about a gentleman uh, by the name of Tsutomu, sorry, I, I, I mispronounced it, Yamaguchi. So he's the only person officially, officially recognized, recognized by the Japanese government as having survived two atomic bombs. And in fact, there are there are 70, some people say maybe 200 people who, who survived both bombs, but he's Mr. Yamaguchi is the only one to be recognized. So he was a native of Nagasaki, uh, but happened to be in Hiroshima uh, for business when on August 6, uh, 1945, when the first day bomb fell. He wasn't at the epicenter of the bomb, but uh, he was wounded. And despite his wounds, he managed to get back to his home in Nagasaki. And on the 9th, he went to work and was explaining what had happened and people didn't believe him. They thought he was crazy when the second bomb fell. Oh so I kind of just kind of read this and I thought, wow, this is fascinating. Here's this awful s story and how could anybody survive this and how do you go on in life? Mm -hmm. Anyway, a couple of years passed and I started reading about this idea about umami and I didn't really think much about that. But at the same time, I, also fell on another newspaper article about this woman who um, was one of the first professionally trained female winemakers in um, America. And her name was uh, Catherine Vajda, and she was a former Hungarian ballerina. And I just thought it was an interesting story. And it got me thinking about people who have survived things because she escaped Hungary from the Soviets. Mm. So I just started thinking about where life takes you and how people continue and they rebuild their lives and they find joy in their life again. So then in a few more years passed and <laughs> I watched this show on Netflix. You may have heard of it. It's a cooking series called salt, fat, acid, heat. And it's based oh, on yeah. a cookbook that, by the same title by a woman called Salmon Nosrat. And one segment of the show is dedicated to salt and umami and the making of soya sauce in this traditional Japanese manner. And my mind just kept working on it. And somehow, I mean, all the elements kind of came together for me. And I couldn't stop thinking about how people reinvent their lives. And I thought there was something about umami, like the flavor of food and the flavor of life and how food awakens memories when you taste food. It, it, you think of something in the past and it just kind of came together that way. 
So wow. it's a complicated roundabout way to get there. <laughs> well, um, you know, the best stories often have a more complex um, reason to them, right? Mm-hmm. It takes us some time to come up with these really great yeah. ideas. <laughs> so have you always been a fan of historical fiction or was it these stories and this kind of organic thinking process that drew you to this particular uh, genre? No, I've always loved historical fiction. I, you know, started like every young girl reading. I mean, that, that wasn't historical fiction at the time, but Anne of Green Gables, not at the time, it is a historical fiction, but to me, it felt like it as a young girl. And then, you know, I got into the classics and I started reading like the British historical fiction. So I just love it. I love learning from the past. I read it. I write it. So, yeah. Live and breathe it. Live and breathe it. Yeah. Well, I would love to hear a sample. Uh, Shauna Klinning is now going to read from her upcoming novel. Thank you. Uh, So this is Chasing Umami, Chapter 1, August 9th, 1945, Nagasaki, Japan. 72 hours before, Momoru Tanabe would have said Buddha was especially pleased with him. He was blessed with a long-limbed body, a nimble mind, and a respectful marriage. It wasn't often that he made mistakes. He was proud to be a forthright man. 72 hours before, glancing out his tram's window, Momoru Tanabe would have easily predicted the coming day. Because he sat taller than everyone else, he often spotted trouble coming from afar. Despite the war, there was order and refinement to his life. He worked or he read or he listened to his opera. Days unfolded in blocks of black or white in either a yes or a no. But that was all before the kaleidoscope of searing, blinding light showered down upon him from out of a pristine blue sky. Now his mind, like his body, felt undone by pain and fear. The world he knew had disintegrated into a sea of roiling bubbles bumping into each other, and he didn't know how to swim. He waited at the back of the tram while his fellow passengers disembarked at the Gotomachi station. When the aisle ahead of him was clear, except for an old lady who clutched a sack of stars close to her chest as though it were sacred treasure, and who stared at the festering blisters on his left cheek, Momoru unfolded from his seat and moved toward the folding door. Gingerly, he stepped onto the black asphalt below, being careful to avoid the smooth line of metal rails embedded in the street. The August air was heavy and warm. Even so, Momoru couldn't help but shudder with cold. He wore only black pants, a sharp crease down the middle, a leather belt, and a white shirt that his wife Chika, a modest woman filled with wisdom and superior intellect, had insisted he wear. But no overcoat or suit jacket, he told her that morning when they'd fought. He couldn't bear the weight of the fabric on his burnt skin. Chika responded by begging him to forgo his meeting with Mr. Nakamuri. Anata, she said, you must stay home and heal instead. I cannot. Momoru replied, orders are orders. Pah, it is only work. Yes, he agreed, work, it is what one does. Within minutes of disembarking the tram, Momoru was moving in step with his city. He pushed through the dense crowd surrounding him, jostling other civilians who hiked the east side of the Yurikami River, anxious to reach his destination. Slow and steady, slow and steady. One must think events through to their probable end. His bells cramped in agony. The end was terrifying. He stepped in close to one of the district's low-slung buildings, squashing his elbows against his ribs to squeeze by. 
The motion pinched the angry birds on his left shoulder and a soft groan trembled upward from his throat. At once, Momaru was disappointed in himself. The pain is nothing, he repeated in his head. It is only what must be endured on the surface. He would withstand much more pain if it meant providing for his family. He inhaled to relax his muscles, breathing in the countless scents that announced he was nearing the harbor, rotting garbage, fish and kelp, the dis distinct tang of salt water, sulfur and sewage, greased ironworks and diesel exhaust, all the aromas of industry. Sidestepping the excrement of a stray dog, he continued another half block, eventually coming to the wood and glass facade of a ramshackle two-story building, a makeshift factory of sorts. Not long ago, the structure had housed a fish plant. Today, it made batteries and electronics in support of the war. Momoru rested his hips upon the building's warped slats to light a cigarette. Of all people, Mr. Nakamuri would understand why he was late for their meeting. The old man was a, was a patient manager, what the government called a good Shintoist. Momoru tried to honor him by listening and following instruction. He blew a thin line of smoke into the windless air. Air raid alarms went off regularly, but not today. He listened for the buzz of cicadas, but heard none. Although clouds covered the sky above, a small window of light was visible to the northeast, directly above the Yurikami district where he lived with Chika and Hine. The sky was the exact color of Mizu Chika used in her paintings, a thin and watery diaphanous blue. When the war ended, he would take her to the country so she could paint outdoors. She would enjoy an excursion away from the dissonance of the city. With his shoe, he extinguished his cigarette on the curb. A newsboy was hawking dailies across the street. Momoru considered buying a paper to read the reports of damage in Hiroshima, but then an alert warning sounded. His heart thumped once against his chest. It was best to keep moving. Those surrounding him ignored the alert too. They would only move to the shelter if it turned into a siren. All the same, Momoru quickened his pace, hurrying past the movie theater where he and Chika had once watched a newsreel about the war. Turning the corner at the public baths, they were busy. He skirted some young children playing with marbles and Menko cards in the dark alley. The black sheen of their hair caught his eyes and he watched a young girl jump rope in bare feet, overalls and bouncing pigtails. His thoughts ran to his sweet Hane, her fat cheeks as pink and delicate as a cherry blossom. He considered telling the children to move inside, but then the alert warning faded. From somewhere down the lane, Tokyo Rhapsody played on the radio. Wow, that was really beautiful. Um, oh, thank, thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, I like your style and... Um, that really made me want to keep reading it because I know it's going to get really sad, but <laughs> it will, but I hope it gets better too. Bring some optimism <laughs> into it as well though. So um, no, that was great. Uh, do you have any rough idea of the timing for when you you're hoping it might come out? Well, I go to beta readers the end of this month and then I'll work through their stuff. Then I have an editor lined up, a professional editor. And so I'm hoping after that to get it into the hands of somebody. So um, my editor has offered if she feels confident, which I'm hoping she will, that to put it into a, um, in someone's hands. So, I mean, it takes a long time, doesn't it? So it could be, it could be 2022 before I could see it in print, but I am, um, I'm hoping. 
Yeah, it's uh, quite a process. Um, it to is. Finish yeah. Book. Yeah, but um, certainly wish you the best of luck. I think. Thank this you so much. Turn out really well. Uh, just before we say farewell for today, is there somewhere our listeners can follow you uh, to stay up to date on your latest works? Sure. I just I have a Twitter account, and it's Shauna Clinning. Uh, at Twitter and uh, an Instagram. And that again, is just Shauna Clinning. It's just nice and simple. And that's S-H-A-U-N-A-C-L-I-N-N-I-N-G. That's right. Yeah. Perfect. All right. So I encourage all of our listeners to uh, follow Shauna and uh, stay up to date on when this wonderful book will be coming out. Thank you so much, Brandy. I enjoyed it. (laughs) Thanks for being here. Our next guest today is Anne Shortell, and if you haven't had the pleasure of listening to her speak at any of our other events or of reading any of her writing, let me just say that I'm thrilled to introduce you. If you're a fan of historical fiction, crime fiction, or beautifully written stories in general, then you will love Anne. Anne Shortell was born in Kingston, Ontario, and raised on legends of her Celtic ancestors. In a previous century, she was a business journalist and author and won an award or two. She wrote Celtic Knot in homage to the Irish storytelling tradition embodied by the late Darcy McGee. As a longtime collector of L.M. Montgomery books, she's chuffed that her debut novel has been compared to Alias Grace meets a dark, twisty Anne of Green Gables. Who wouldn't love that description? (laughs) Anne lives in Toronto with her husband and has been traveling a bit as Clara Swift's tale garners interest and honors. Now she must stay at her desk to record Clara's new misadventures out West and in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the show, Anne. We're both so excited that you can be here with us today. Thank you, Chris, and thank you, Brandy, for such a lovely introduction. I'll tell on myself, Chris wrote that. I just said it. So (laughs) he's a beautiful writer as well. (laughs) Thanks, Brandy. (laughs) I love the, uh, the concept of being raised on legends of your Celtic ancestors, by the way, what kind of legends? My mother said to me in her later days, well, you're a writer, dear, but I'm a storyteller. She was Welsh. She's My father, hard. yes, she's exactly. She had a great imagination. And my father was Irish Canadian. And also, it wasn't so much imagination as passing on, as recounting stories so that it goes from generation to generation and the record is there. So both sides. Which is how they, they pass their stories down, right? Oral, mm-hmm. oral tradition. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, Yeah, so let's dive right in. Uh, Your novel, Anne, is a fascinating twist on the story of Darcy McGee. Could you tell us a little bit about the book itself? 
Darcy McGee was a rebel in Ireland in the 1848 rebellion. He had been in the US already and had gone back for the rebellion. Uh, after that, he attempted to settle Irish immigrants in America, became very disillusioned with the way they saw the Irish and found out from trips to Quebec that because of our arrangements be French and English, Irish Catholics would have rights, religious rights in Canada. So he tried to bring a great group of people to Canada and he failed. He only came with himself and his family, but he immediately plunged into the political life, became a representative for Montreal's Griffintown, the big Irish settlement there. And he became more religious as he aged and he changed entirely his opinion about rebellion in Ireland and started to believe that this Canadian model could be applied to Ireland if the British could only see that the Irish would accept it. So he became the biggest enemy of the Irish rebellion rebels. And to them, he was, of course, a Judas, a traitor. Uh, he was the one who was campaigning at the time that the Irish were invading the borders of Canada just before Confederation in order to make a point to Britain. He was campaigning the most against Irish rebellion. And on April 7th, 1868, nine months after Confederation, he was shot dead in the back of the head, entering his boarding house in Ottawa. Wow. Ken McGugan, who's researched a lot, as uh, wants to write a nonfiction book, has said that if McGee had lived, McDonald's treatment of Métis and the and Aboriginals would have been different because McGee had strong beliefs of the rights of, of minorities and of the rights of originals of original occupants of land. So it, you know there were many reasons that it was a shame, but it it led to. Uh, Unfortunately, a roundup of, of every Irish young man who could possibly be involved, and it led to a show trial, and it led to the hanging of a man uh, who I believe was not guilty. Right, right. It's a fascinating story, and it could have completely changed the Canada we know, right? Uh, probably for the better, I think. Yes. And maybe even Ireland and Britain, since that was his his main goal sounds like. Um, have you always been fascinated by Darcy McGee or is that something that you discovered while researching to write a book? I hadn't thought about McGee in years and I had a dream. And the dream was of a young girl sitting writing by candlelight. And there, I woke up with one line. I was on the other side of the door when Mr. Darcy was shot. And even though I'm a huge fan of Pride and Prejudice, I knew she didn't mean that, Mr. Darcy. Because suddenly it flashed into my brain the story that my father had made sure he told me when I was a young girl. And we were standing on Spark Street in front of the place where McGee was shot. And he told this story to a young girl, okay, uh, about the shooting and about the rebels. And he said, you know, if he hadn't been killed that way, he might have been killed in a bar fight. He was such a joker. So I happen to think that my father's family may have been rebels, you know, right. their opinion of McGee. But the girl in my story who desperately wanted to tell me, Clara Swift, McGee was her hero. He was the person who sponsored her passage from Ireland. She was working as a maid 
in first his house and then in the boarding house in Ottawa. And she also was an educated girl. So she would, she was helping to copy his work because McGee was also a prolific writer, the orator of his time and a poet. So she would be writing out everything for him. And as many of us writers know, you sometimes write things quickly and you have your own type of shorthand. And the fact that she knew that meant that after he died, she came in handy for some people. So Clara Swift is, is actually a real person? Clara Swift is not a real person. She's the girl I dreamed. Okay. I put, so I used her to show a lens which is not shown often enough in, in historical tales, which is the young female immigrant lens, the, the lens of someone who's living in poverty and who has very few choices. And the person who's often in the room and nobody thinks about. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That idea first came to me because Peter C. Newman said once decades earlier in, in a speech I happened to be at that when he wrote his, his nonfiction books about John Diefenbaker, the prime minister, Diefenbaker would be furious that he knew what was going on in the cabinet room and he would scream at his cabinet ministers and he started to not trust any of them. And, and Newman made it very clear that the person who was telling him things was in the room, but was not a cabinet minister. Right. And that's it, right? The people with the most fascinating stories are often not the heroes, so to speak. So historical fiction's always been one of my favorite reading categories. Uh, I think it gives us an important window into the past uh, and the way it makes it, in many respects, feel more real than when you're simply reading facts out of a textbook. And especially Celtic history and English history and Irish history, that's all fascinating to me. I love that. When you were writing the book, how important was it to you to preserve the historical accuracy versus tell the story? A long time ago when I was a journalist, accuracy was everything. Research was everything. I found from the years I spent trying to become a fiction writer that you need to know the rules to break the rules and that you research, but then story is queen. And if, if I may say, this came up recently on a, a Facebook site that I'm on uh, among writers where they were saying, is it fair to write historical fiction and give people the wrong idea? And it, does it actually hurt, you know, that people have fake ideas? And I wrote back and said, anybody who's reading fiction understands that it's a story. And, you know, if you read the Iliad, you wouldn't think that you were reading fact, but you would gain a greater truth about the myths that existed and about the time and the in which the author existed and about the author themselves, right? Virginia Woolf talked about that, about how in particularly in difficult controversial situations, you never can trust what anybody has written, fact or fiction. You have to strain it. I must say, when I look at history, I, as, a, as a female, I have to say, I never think that it's the fact because there's, you know, 50% of the population is usually not represented. Edited so, out. So, yeah. So I did a lot of research for this book and a lot of it happened. And a little bit of it happened a week or two 
on the other side, you know, there's a house burning in the book. It actually happened at a different point versus the trial. But I used it, I shifted it a bit to make a greater point and also to move my character further along. She, when she no longer had a job or a home, she had to find a new job and she ended up looking after the McDonald's baby, the prime minister's house. And so it kept her in the midst of the story. So I was, I was telling it through her eyes and she needed to be central to the action. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and you hinted at it just now, but before writing fiction, you were a writer of nonfiction, a journalist. Did you find it hard to make the transition between the two? I would say that is a story of hubris and failure and suffering. Yes. Uh, I absolutely believed when I had co-written two nonfiction books and written one myself, that it would be no problem to write what my first novel was, which was a, I was a business writer. I wrote a business mystery. I mean, how simple could that be? Yeah. Uh, and I had an agent who was my nonfiction agent who knew he could sell it. And you know what? No. So then I rewrote the whole thing and changed it from first person to third and from present tense to past and came up with an entirely new manuscript and it didn't sell either. This happened three times. I also started a second novel, uh, which was a historical fiction set in Britain and France a thousand years ago. And that, you know, I did so much research for that. I got totally bogged down. And that's when I realized that you can't be driven by the research. You have to be driven by the story. So it took me a long time. And I have two novels in drawers, you know, because I'm an optimist. They're not yet in the trash can. They're in drawers, you know, gathering moss. I, I think I have one or two of those. Too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then I decided when I when I got this idea, I knew I needed help. So I found a course, I found a two years writer's course at Stanford that you could do online. And that really allowed me to learn the lessons I needed to write the book. And uh, Celtic Knot has, I believe, won 14 official awards, including the 2019 Whistler Independent Book Awards, as well as this year, 2020 uh, Ink and Cinema Showcases, the Crime List Award and being finalist in nine others, right? Is there any advice you can give to authors who would love to become award-winning authors themselves? One thing that I'm not, not actually that good at is the, um, the summary of the book, you know, that you have to enter in a lot of awards. And I've had to work at that a lot. And I would say, get that right. And also look at the rubrics of each individual award don't, you know, take a time and don't send in the same entry that you sent into the previous one, because they're really sticky. They're looking for, it's like, they're like agents. They're looking for reasons to say no. Right. And so they write specific uh, rubrics. They want to see specific things. And if you just send in something that's cookie cutter, then they, it's easy for them to say no. Now, I will say I, I used the award route because... I was lucky enough to be a, a finalist in the Crime Writers of Canada unpublished manuscript contest, which I would say if you if your book has anything to do with a crime, enter. And uh, uh, that gave me a great deal of encouragement at a time when I really needed it, when I was recovering from a concussion and I didn't think I was going to get this book out. 
And so I thought, okay, now the book's out. I don't know how to market it, but this award thing worked. I've got it. I've got a sticker on my book. So I went that route. Uh, I haven't done my own uh, blog. I haven't done my own podcast or, you know, I haven't, I haven't um, sort of put my time and money into some areas that people say are absolutely necessary. I, I did this and then out of a competition, there would be an opportunity that would arise or I'd meet somebody who was then going to Frankfurt and they'd represent my book in Frankfurt and then make some, there's, there's a possibility of a translation on the table or um, one award, uh, the Next Generation Book Award. Uh, I went to Washington and their winners and finalists um, can go and uh, sign books at the American Library Association meeting. So there are lots of offshoots. And if you look at what the award is potentially offering, you see that this could take you to a new place. It could take you to library sales. It could take you to foreign rights sales. So it's it's kind of like applying for a new job, right? You need to look at what the application says and then tailor it. Yeah. Tailor it to that. And also it, it happened because when the book came out, I hadn't thought any farther. I had the book out, right? <laughs> yes. So then I turned to, you know, I naturally turned to the, the easiest route, which was, was something I'd already done. Hey, I know how to do that. I was very lucky. I've been I've been extremely blessed since this book came out. I really had no level of expectation other than, hey, I finished a book and some editors in you know in California thought it was good and I published it and I pushed myself through that. And then what am I going to do now? Awesome. Well, I think you've done really well. Thank you, Chris. Oh, no problem. And speaking of that, I think our readers would love to hear uh, from the author herself read from the novel. Any chance you'd be able to read a small passage for us? Oh, I thank you. I could read a couple of pages from the beginning. And if my voice starts to take on a bit of a lilt, it's not because I'm trying to be Irish. It's because, you know, I, I'm channeling my parents' accents a bit, which, okay. are, which are mixed Celtic. Okay. Ottawa, Canada. Wednesday, April 7th, 1869, half past two in the morning. I'm wasting my new beeswax candles, staring at the pages of the past. I should be keeping watch over Miss MacDonald. Sweet little baboo, she's finally asleep, thanks be. Mr. MacDonald did have this desk placed by the nursery window for my personal use. My escritoire, milady calls it. She's gifted me the oak box with my tapers and a pewter candelabra. Milady says beeswax gives twice the light of tallow, which is for the best, as I wish never to touch tallow again. I do need the light. The moon is the merest bowline in the night sky. There's no snow left to reflect the stars above, not since the Easter melt. Suzanne Lacroix told me at the market yesterday that the promise of snow is in the air and will wrap round us again soon. She says the Métis have their own ways of forecasting weather. Me, I've learned it's best not to twig what spring may bring in this country. This is the anniversary of Mr. McGee's murder. The last night Mr. McGee will laugh with the fairies. At a year and a day, his soul will be free to move on. It's right that I do too. 
I only pray this annal sets me on the road to redemption. I run a finger along the loops and spikes of my opening sentence. The ink is stiff. The words are weighted in place. Tis the Prime Minister himself who's tasked me to write down all of what I know and even what I think. Now I've crossed out, corrected, and blotted the last of my pages. I've seen this job through. Come morning, I'm to hand over my words and my pledge that this is the only copy and leave final judgment to the hires up. Yet I'm missing something in my telling, how I came to be at the center of this saga, how I know what matters, and as much as anyone alive will ever know of the truth. I'd best set my thoughts straight before I drip, drip ink onto another piece of good linen rag paper. A choir of fresh paper rests next to my copying hand, whiter than I can make a bed sheet with three lye bleaches, with a watermark that shows the fool under his cap. The same paper as Mr. McGee used. Twas one of his little jokes, how every man needs to remember he's more fool than king. There's barely any India blue left, though. Mr. McGee called an empty ink pot a message that enough words had been used on a matter. A story's well told when you give away a bit of your heart, Clara. That's what Mr. McGee used to tell me. He always started with himself, and he was the finest storyteller I'm ever likely to hear. So I'll dip my pen one more time and lay out my own past. Simple. I'm Clara Swift, Irish girl, British subject, and a Canadian. All 21 months we've had a country. Housemaid, nursemaid, politician scribe, and now an author myself, and me only 15. I wonder if Mr. McGee had written this many words by the time he was my age, for all that he wrote after. I'm lucky enough that Mr. Thomas Darcy McGee, a saint of a man, was born in Carlingford County, Louth, Ireland. Two years ago, he wrote to our priest for a girl to help around his house in Montreal, Quebec. It didn't work out well for me with the McGees in Montreal. None's my fault, though I shouldn't talk against Mrs. McGee. Anyway, I've offered it up to Mary, Mother of God. Mr. McGee, bless his soul and good nature, brought me here to Ottawa after he'd been elected to the new Canadian Parliament to work at Mrs. Trotter's boarding house and to keep on copying Mr. McGee's writing. It's hard to think Mr. McGee's been dead these 12 months. Since that night, all the talk has been of the new word, assassination, which means murder and politics mixed together in a devil's brew with all Irish as suspects. I've been twisting this way and that myself, looking for whom to trust. John A. Macdonald is our prime minister and so boss of us all, as well as me in particular. He was Mr. McGee's close friend. I must believe he knows best. The Prime Minister is right to think that Mr. McGee would want me to parse out the truth. Mr. McGee believed in laying out the hard facts of the matter with no weight given to what it may cost a body. There's no question but that I was there from start to finish for sure. And I beg forgiveness nightly for any hand I had in the course of events. I suspect Mr. MacDonald may tuck away this testament, leaving for posterity's judgment the strict morals of the choices made. There's plenty to answer for, with a man shot dead and a man hanged for it. 
that's the simplest accounting, though I must tot up three others whose deaths are in some way linked to the McGee assassination, and two more whose hearts Kushlin may yet flow beyond the sea. And little hope now that Mr. McGee's own apologia will be published to help set his family's affairs to rights. As for the rest of the country, it's a heavy weight on me that so many folk believe a lie, even as I do see it safest while lives are still at stake. Mr. MacDonald isn't a dreamer like Mr. McGee. His tools are people. He knows how they can be best set to use. He looks at me, he sees a maid of all work. When he found me crying the other day because my words aren't high-minded poetry like Mr. McGee's, he said I should write my account of this past year the way I do dishes. So the facts shine once I've cleaned all the muck off them. And that I've done. I haven't dropped the gravy boat in first so the water wasn't fit for fancy china. My water's been clean enough to come back and rinse the brandy glasses. If I've had to stay up late to scrub the worst of the stew pots, that's the job done right and I can take pride in it, no matter the mess the gentlemen have made. So here's the clearest reason why I'm the one to set down this tale. I was on the other side of the door when Mr. McGee was shot. That sounds amazing, Anne. Thank you, Thank so, you much. so much. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, makes me- Thank you. Thank you. The whole thing. <laughs> well, I don't have an audio book yet, so. Is it know, in the works? It's not in the works and I don't have a great hope of this, but I am now uh, in a competition, speaking of competitions, the uh, indie author competition. I'm the Ontario adult fiction entry. And in a couple of months, whoever wins from the, the 16 states and one province who are involved through the libraries and through Biblioboard and Library Journal, uh, the, the winner has an audiobook paid for them. So wow. in the interest of optimism, in the same way I have those books in a drawer rather than the trash, I haven't yet thought about an audiobook, just in case. Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> Uh, and so your bio on your website says you're working on the, the new adventures of Clara Swift. Can you tell us anything else about those or top secret? No, I think Clara would say I could tell you a bit. The book is called Celtic Knot, A Clara Swift Tale. When I started, I didn't know there would be other stories, although a few soon occurred to me. I was advised to put a Clara Swift mystery on, on the book, and I thought, no, a Clara Swift tale, because who knows where things are going next. Clara has another adventure that I'm working on now, and it takes a little longer than the first one. It takes two years. So by the end of it, she is older, and uh, she's gone through perhaps even more than she did in the first book. And actually, I have four beginnings for this. I don't know if you're pantsers or plotters or how you work. Sometimes my journey seems to be picaresque and I have all sorts of adventures all over the place but I have a paragraph here from one of the beginnings that, that sort of sets out what's happened it happens that this is actually November 1871 in Ottawa and uh, so it's substantially after that piece that I just read you okay and here's what she says she says I told the priest a big lie today 
I told it to him while kneeling in the confessional booth. Twas a lie I needed to tell, so as to be blessed with himself's absolution and be able to partake in Holy Communion. I couldn't tell the truth and still live as a good Catholic from here on in. I couldn't talk about Liam. I couldn't start in about the guns and the money, nor about who really passed judgment and decided to kill Corporal Tommy Scott that cursed night in Red River. It was a year gone by now that I'd been part of the drunken firing squad. It was little more than a month ago since I'd raised a gun again. It may be just as served that like Tommy, I'd felt a ball of shot knock me to the ground myself. Now that I'd risen from that battleground, I cannot return. There's no other way to go but forward. It would be beyond the pale here in Ontario to be known as someone who'd participated in either a Métis rebellion or a Fenian invasion, let alone both. Any of my doings these past two years, should they be uncovered, would make me a pariah in this parish or even one of the hunted myself. And so while I told the priest true about my journey west and east again, there was a second journey that I'm keeping to myself. I didn't talk at all about what happened in Washington last spring or in Pembina in the Dakota territories last month. The priest became caught up in my narrative, even as I made it seem that, that I were not a strong strand in the weave of events that have been shape, shifting the shape of our country. He wanted to know about the important people who have passed through Red River. He wanted to know if I'd met Louis Riel. Being a Catholic and an Irishman, I sensed that he might admire Louis, even though Louis's been painted in the press as the devil himself. I told a bit of the truth about Louis and his sister Sarah and their friendship with Liam O'Donoghue without giving much of anything away. Afterward, I could hear the priest pull back the red velvet cathedral confessional curtain to watch me walk off. Under his shocked scrutiny, I made sure to bow my head meekly over my praying palms all the way down the side aisle to dip a finger in to cross myself, to turn to genuflect at our Lord's presence. In that moment, shriven of some of my sins at least, and then blessed with holy water, I felt safer than I felt in two years. So that tells you a bit about what Claire is going through. That was very intriguing. <laughs> awesome. So thank you, Anne. Uh, Anne can be found on Twitter at Celtic Not McGee and on Facebook at Anne Shortell Celtic Not, as well as her website, AnneShortell.com. And Anne's novel, Celtic Not, is available for purchase at indigo.ca, Amazon. Friesen Press, and your favorite independent bookstore. Thank you so much for spending time with us today, Anne. We can't wait to hear all about Clara's latest misadventures. <laughs> Thank you. I can't wait till Clara lets me in on it all either. <laughs> <laughs> So our last guest of the day is a shortlisted author of the 2020 Fred Kerner Book Awards, Nancy Jo Cullen. 
Nancy is a twice-nominated Journey Prize fiction writer. Her novel, The Western Alienation Merit Badge, was published in May 2019 by Wolsack and Wynn's Buck Rider Books. Her short story collection, Canary, is the winner of the 2012 Metcalf Rook Award. She is the author of three critically acclaimed collections of poetry with Calgary's Frontenac House Press. She is at work on her fourth collection of poems. Nancy is also the 2010 winner of the Writers Trust Dane Ogilvy Prize for Emerging Gay Writer. She holds an MFA in creative writing from the University of Guelph Humber. A transplanted Westerner, she now lives in Kingston, Ontario. Welcome to the show, Nancy. Pleasure to have you here. Thanks for having me. I, I appreciate the opportunity to chat about my book. Uh, so Nancy, Western Alienation Merit Badge is an important book, both in terms of life in general and for Canadian history. Could you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, it's a story about a family uh, in Calgary. It's mostly set in two time periods, 19. 82 and 1974, and then some sort of current era, like early late teens of this century. And it's about a family in crisis who, who are trying to figure out, you know, how to survive, particularly in the first section of the book in 1982. They are suffering from unemployment, I guess. The National Energy Program has really helped to speed up the global recession that was already taking place. It just had such an adverse effect, particularly on Albertans, and it really crushed the economy there. I don't think there's much denying that. And so this family is caught up in that sort of that sweeping economic disaster. And at the same time, they have lost the father, the patriarch's second wife has died. And so they're all there to just sort of help the dad get through uh, but they just don't know how to get through. So it's set in this time of bust and disaster, emotional and economic disaster. And it's sort of played against an earlier time when there was an economic boom, but the family was still in another kind of crisis when the first wife and the mother of the two sisters has just died. So it's kind of got this push. And then the family just can't figure out how to take care of each other going back from that first time and taking... Um, into the 80s and even really into the current era they never they just become an estranged group of people so I wanted to work out ideas of alienation that were much larger than a family but that that takes a kind of expertise I guess I didn't have you know I was really thinking about the reform party and sort of western separatism and western alienation and in those ways and um, but I found to tell a story that had any emotional drive, I had to bring it down. But those were the places I was starting. I was wanting to think about how do you understand how the West feels about the East of this country. As an Eastern person of this country, I've always wondered that. Yeah. Well, you know, I think there's a few factors like that I can remember from growing up in the West. One of them was, and they don't do this anymore, but it, when you went to vote in the past you would be going to your polling station at 
say five after work and the election was already called because Quebec mm-hmm. and Ontario's votes had been tallied. So um, those kinds of things created this feeling of powerlessness. And then really in Alberta in particular, like the national energy program was so destructive to the economy of Alberta uh, that Albertans, very few forgive that still to this day. You know, it was, it's very hard for any kind of liberal government, provincial or federal to get traction in Alberta. And I don't, you know, I mean, Jason Kenney still uses that kind of partisanship thinking that sort of Trudeau, especially the name Trudeau, like people just hate Justin Trudeau because he's Pierre Trudeau's son, you know, not for maybe better reasons, like he did this wrong or that wrong, but simply, you know, those kinds of things. So simply the name. Yeah. And, you know, I do think that it led to the development of the conservative party that we see today, that sort of really ultra conservative, not progressive conservative reaction that started in Alberta and eventually took over the whole conservative party. Well, your book tackles quite a few serious subjects. And um, you said you wanted to talk about in your book, the thought of Western alienation. I'm wondering what was it that inspired you to want to write about that? What was it that inspired your story? Well, I wanted to explore those things we were just talking about, that sort of political divergence that's happened in, and the way that, you know, once I moved out East, I thought how often people don't seem to know much here about the West. Uh, Alberta in particular, maybe the prairies, maybe BC is a little more familiar. So I sort of wanted to explore that. But you know, I also wanted to explore uh, family. And so alienation started to move into that sort of micro experience of alienation inside a family. So in a sense, almost, I suppose that family becomes a, a metaphor for the larger things I was thinking of, although they're not a metaphor. And because I wanted to have a queer character, I really started out thinking that it was going to have a happier ending like that was not the result that I had planned for in my mind uh when I was beginning but it was the only way that the story worked in the end for me right set in 1982 with a catholic family (sighs) under pressure like it just everything turning out sweetly just didn't seem right to me so true to the story yeah yeah yeah, true to what would have what happened to so many people I know, people my age, you know. That's and still young people in lots of places uh I think experience that kind of alienation coming out in their families. But but it's not just my gay character, my who is alienated. Her sister is alienated in lots of ways as well. Their father is alienated. They don't know how to reach to each other to help each other find peace like they're they're stuck at an impasse they're always at an impasse they don't have the skills to listen to each other and they don't have the skills to forgive each other and that's a kind of practice I think you know and a trust and a belief that things can get better not worse and I think they lack those abilities all of them awesome sounds like it's a a very um accurate I guess description of family life well yeah I think that we often expect our families to be um more to us than than um we would say a friend like we would we would be 
more flexible with a friend. And so I think that, um, you know, and then families expect kind of that you're to conform to a kind of, you know, we're all supposed to hold it up for the family. And I think the pressures of family are kind of weird and it can be a place that's not safe where we have all this kind of, you know, um, mythology around the family where the family is the safe place and the place that everybody should want to be in and having, you know, a heterosexual head of the family and then, you know, two point so many children and all of those things are what creates happiness, you know, and that anything outside of that, like a single parent or queer people or queer people with children don't qualify. And so family is kind of a fraught place, you know, if you are anything but conforming to a really sort of, even today, you know, I think the idea of family as the safest space just keeps coming up. And we see it even now with COVID where families are meant to rely on themselves to work and educate children and have enough money to pay bills. And we don't have a community thing in place where we think of children as everybody's, you know, or something like that. So, yeah, I think families are kind of good and bad places for their members. I, I agree. Uh, and sometimes it's it's difficult, I think, because you could even have like family who are, they are very open and accepting mm-hmm. once they know. Yeah. Right. But when they, when they don't know and they assume that you are just yes. like them. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and this is, this is true, you know, globally, like, you know, I have a body and a face that conforms to feminine uh, standards of femininity and femaleness or whatever. So I'm cis, cisgendered, I guess. And I was a single parent for half of my children's upbringing as sole parent, but my, my partner had died. And so, um, my children felt like a little cape of invisibility. Like they kind of erased my sexuality in a way because people just assumed because of the way I look that I had some husband somewhere sometime with these children and that was never the case my kids always grew up with me and at some point two mothers you know a dad for sure that was connected to our lives but was never part of our marriage or anything like that so people have ideas about you set on structures I think they don't even see and that's what this family is up against only it's like 40 years ago when those structures nobody questioned them right You know, in the early 80s, nobody said, well, some people did, but they were treated like weirdos. You know, nobody said, why is this the norm? You know. Um, So talking about setting a novel in 40 years ago, um, your novel is set in real Canadian history. Mm -hmm. So what was your favorite aspect of writing a novel set in Canada of the past? And was there any like wow facts that you discovered through your research? Well, you know, it was really fun to go back and read about that time and to think about that time and most certainly to look at the photographs. So I spent a lot of time. I went back to Calgary a few times. My family are still all in Calgary. So there's many reasons for me to go back there. There's some good archives in Toronto as well. But going through the old uh, newspapers and magazines, especially things like Alberta Report, that was really interesting. I knew a lot of it, but I didn't, I was very, I was young and I was partying and I was 
living in British Columbia during the National Energy Program, I didn't know. My brother, uh, my older brother was young and disgustingly wealthy in the late 70s, just having worked in the oil field and then completely broke in the early 80s and out of work. But I never really put that together to any sort of larger political situation. It was just, you know, anyway, we were still just partying, weren't we? So we didn't, you know, I never gave that any thought. So so it was good to reread that and to reach into that and to really see how much my instinct about where things began was right. But also sometimes it was weird to think about how little rhetoric had changed, especially in Alberta. Like they cling to some of that rhetoric in ways that I just don't understand. But I don't know that I had anything especially wow moment, but it was really fun and kind of exciting to to think about that period of time again in a different context in a context a bit separate from the kind of life and times I was living right so and you know how it is like when you look at old pictures of when you were a child or something and how you feel when you see those pictures of you walking around in a goofy t-shirt and your shorts are falling off it still had those kinds of feelings too when I was looking I was like oh yeah yeah I forgot about that or you know and scribbling notes don't forget this right so that was kind of great too. Some nostalgia for you. Yeah, in a funny kind of way. But I'm a, you know, I love to go down little rabbit holes of history and then I want to make sure I have it exactly right. Like what was the length of the skirt or what was the hat or, you know, so I like those little. I think they're actually delay tactics for me, but uh, <laughs> in terms of writing, but they are still fun things to fall into little rabbit holes like that so I had a lot of fun with that we all have our way to procrastinate a little bit right have a little bit so on that same topic really where your story is set during a time and event that many people are still alive today they remember it it's you know still seared into their psyche so compared to you know writing about something that long past people can't really uh, aren't really around to contest how you've written about it. Did you have challenges with that aspect of it? You, you know, I, um, that's maybe my favorite part is to write like recent history and not, not to go back. And honestly, I spent a lot of time conferring with people. So I moved to Calgary in 1985 and I stayed there for 23 years. And I have really dear uh, friends who, still live there who are, you know, living alternative lives in any number of ways. So I kept in, you know, we talked a lot. We, you know, am I right about this? Did I get this right? And then I have like my brother who was working in the oil industry still in Calgary. And sometimes I would, you know, chat with him about things. So I had uh, living people to talk to about it, but I still had my own take on it. And I feel confident about my take you know I was very young or you know but I was an adult and so it doesn't matter to me if people don't agree with my perspective on that point of time because I feel like I got it right like for this particular situation you know that you know I trust um, and, and it's a story. I get to say it the way I want, right? So so I wasn't too worried about anybody living. And I didn't really use anyone's name but Trudeau's in there. And that's, I think, open territory, right? And so oh, yeah. I didn't slander any 
former Albertan politicians or anything like that. So um, as tempting as it might have been. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> awesome. Uh, so what were your biggest challenges and your biggest joys you experienced while writing? Well, <laughs> you know, I'm not sure I experienced much joy at all writing this. I mean, the research part was lots of fun, but sitting down to write a first draft, I find almost physically painful. Like, I, I don't know what, why I even keep doing this, honestly, for God's sake. <laughs> and for writing a, a first novel, I just had... A lot of self-doubt. So I did the first section pretty quickly. And that's the end of the book. That's the 1974 section. And that's when I, I wrote that section when I thought things were going to be so different and everything was going to be happily ever after when it was a different book. And so that came out a little more uh, readily. But I think for me, I had to flounder a lot. I had to leave when you write before this, I've written short stories and poems and you don't spend nearly as much time with bad writing on the page when you're writing a poem, for instance, as you must with a novel. You must leave hundreds of pages of questionable writing down until you finish a first draft. And that was excruciating for me. So I went slowly and I fought myself in lots of ways. And I just didn't know what I was doing and I didn't trust myself. And even in the end, when uh, Paul Vermeer said, yeah, you know, I'd like to pu publish this. I kind of thought like, what is wrong with him? <laughs> He's so stupid. Why do you pick my book? But because by then I'd hated it so much. But then, yeah. you know, through the process of um, editing and the book design, which I love so much, I got around, you know, I, I could appreciate it, but it took me a long time to like the book again. And so I think I'm my biggest obstacle. And I still find that on the new long fiction project I'm working on. I am my biggest obstacle. I don't know what my friggin' problem is, but I am my biggest obstacle. I just get in front of myself all the time. And then I just stand there like a big block. And I'm just working on getting it down, getting it down, and then asking myself if it would be easier if I had outlined. Hmm. I, don't ha I don't have the answer to that. Well, everybody works so differently, right? And um, I don't know if I've met a writer who didn't at least a little bit feel that way, that their worst enemy was themselves, right? Yeah. Because it's it's all a mental process yeah. and, and you have to be stuck inside your head to write this stuff. Yeah. But then you're also stuck inside your head. So you have the, the positives and the negatives of that, right? It's really a, 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 a stupid job, if you think about it. Like, <laughs> like, really, you know. And then, you know, you have to push past the idea that you don't have a story to tell or that it's been told and blah, blah, blah. So the more I get into rewrites, the more I grew fond of the book, right? So when we were in the by the time we we're in the copy editing stages and I had other people's feedback, I could start to see it with their eyes. Right. You know, I guess it's kind of imposter syndrome feeling like, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's yeah. Very common. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you like the book again, because we are going to ask you to read an excerpt. from it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I'm just going to read two little bits 
so in my story, the things that happen are this family of three, which are uh, Jimmy Murray and his uh, daughters, Francis and Bernadette Murray. And Francis is, I said, for all intents and purposes, the central character, although the book is from all their points of views at different times. And there is another character, Robin, who was a little friend. Uh, they were childhood friends, Francis and Robin. And Robin comes back into their lives as an adult and in is pretty much the catalyst, I guess, the match to the fire, like that lights the fire that, you know, that sets the gasoline covered rags that is the family afire. So she's a kind of whirlwind of destruction in this adult point, but I, I hope a sweetish child. So I'm going to read... Francis is called back from a trip, a lover and a trip in England to come home and help her family, help her father pay the mortgage. They have to keep, to keep the house, they need the three of them to pay the mortgage. So Francis has come home to help with this. And so I'll read her landing in the airport in Calgary and being picked up by her sister. And then I'm just going to skip and read. The book is separate into a lot of little sections and I'm going to skip ahead to 1974 and read a little section when uh, Robin, who is the adult woman who wreaks havoc, uh, is a sweet child and meets Francis for the first time. So first I will read Francis Landing and then I'll just skip ahead to 1974. Um, And the book is separated into sections uh, that are girl guide badges because I like that idea, I guess. So this section is called Signaler. Nice army boots, Bernie's first words to Francis. They go with the brush cut. Thanks, Francis said sweetly. Bernie wrapped a single arm around Francis, pulling her close. Sarcasm, sweetie. She ran her hand across Francis's flat top. What were you thinking here? Francis swung her backpack with her free arm and headed toward the doors. Bernie fired up a smoke as soon as they got into the car. I'm trying to quit, she said. Francis unrolled her window. You'll see why it's so hard. Bernie took a long drag on her cigarette. They drove in silence. Barlow Trail rolled past, the mountains already dusted with snow marking the western horizon. Then the Sheraton Hotel, the Husky truck stop, the endless repair and service shops housed in dull beige buildings. And after the impossibly tiny cars of Europe, trucks, all trucks, like the Jimmy they were driving, a brand name her dad couldn't resist. Poor daddy, Francis said. Bernadette nodded. But I have to tell you, he's not so easy to live with right now. Francis bugged her eyes at Bernadette. Sure, that shit with Doris was brutal. I mean, really, really terrible. But hey, I lost a good job too. Bernadette tossed her cigarette out the window, the better part of it not smoked. And the guy I used to work for just died of a massive heart attack. He lost everything, every fucking thing. You have no idea. Give me some credit, Bernie. Bernie raised her eyebrows and drove on, eyes on the road, hands tightly gripping the steering wheel, knuckles white. Okay, you can roll your window up now, Bernie said. Frances rolled her window up. The sisters drove in silence toward their father waiting at home. Jimmy was standing in the window. When Frances stepped out of the truck, he held his hand up, more like a stop signal than a wave. Jesus, he did look crazy. Frances offered a careful wave in return. Jimmy smiled and raised his other hand. He was holding a pill. He tipped the brightly illustrated green and red label toward her, a salute of sorts, 
raised the bottle to his mouth and took a long swallow. Then he bent toward the sofa and disappeared from view. I know you thought I was exaggerating, Bernie said. Outdoors in the city. Frankie opened her eyes with a start. There was a bug crawling on her cheek. She brushed it from her face and rolled onto her back to find a near perfect girl standing above her. The girl's blonde hair was tied into two neat braids down the length of her back. Instead of cutoffs, she wore pressed pink shorts, a pink and white striped t-shirt and navy blue canvas sneakers. I thought you were dead, the girl said. Maybe I am, Frankie said. How can you talk if you're dead? If you were an angel, I guess so. Frankie sat up, pulled her rubber thongs from her back pockets and slipped them onto her feet. The girl crouched down beside Frankie, but didn't let her bum touch the grass. You seem dead. I was camouflaged. What's your name? The girl asked. Francis, Frankie said, but you can call me Frankie. I'm Robin, because on April 10th, my mum heard a Robin, and she woke up and she thought spring was here, then she went into labour. She thought it would never end, but I was finally born on April 11th, and my mum decided not to go through that again, not even for a son. But anyway, my dad had a son before he got divorced from his first wife. Frankie had never met anyone who was divorced, but the girl didn't look that bad. I'm Francis, because of the saint. Why were you camouflaged? I'm tracking gophers. That explains it, Robin said. Explains what? You're kind of dirty if you haven't noticed. Frankie's cheeks burned. Doesn't your mum get mad, Robin asked? No. Lucky you, I guess. Where do you live? Amy Lorne Mobile Home Park, Frankie said. Where do you live? In Bonavista. My mum got mad and said you'd rather have a GD man-made lake than nothing. So my dad got us a house at the lake, Robin said. Do you like swimming? I guess. Maybe one day I'll take you swimming if your mum says yes. Frankie's stomach growled. I should go home for lunch. Lunch was a long time ago. Frankie squinted into the sun. My mom might be mad, she said. That was great. Thank you very much for sharing that. You're welcome. So while you were reading, I had to, because you had mentioned the cover, and I agree with you, I, I really liked the cover, so I had to bring out my copy to show Chris the cover of it. <laughs> And inside he does this, like each section has its own badge. So the designer did so much work on it. Like it's its own piece of, it's its own um, work of art. Like uh, I felt humbled by the cover, honestly, like um, that I hope that the guts lived up to the design. It's just such a, a beautiful design. And you know, books can look a lot of different ways. So, um, what a treat to have something that I love this much, right? You know, mm -hmm. and I really love the way you have it separated by the badges. I I was a uh, brownie when I was little, right? Yeah. The, the younger version of the girl yeah. guide, and um, so I really enjoyed, yeah. yeah, the sections of the badges because I I remember very well how excited I would be to get one of my badges. So. Yes. <laughs> I was a brownie too, you know, and they were lots of help, the Girl Guides of Canada. They gave me a little book from the, that would have been the guide manual from 74. And so um, I used that a lot in the writing of the book, although it didn't have a list of the badges It had a sort of feeling for the ethos and the illustrations and things like that. So it was just beside me all the time when I was writing it. Like, I don't know that there's a lot from it, but it was kind of like a talisman of sorts, you know? And, um, and then online, I was able to find because I really wanted to, for the most part, all the badges that are 
because badges evolve with thinking, right? Brownies and guides are a really different organization than they were when I was in it and probably even when you were in it. So, um, so I wanted the badges that were dated to that era that had the names of that time, right? They, there's some badges they wouldn't have now because of our ideas around colonialism and faith have changed. You know, it was very Christian when I was young and mm -hmm. very even when colonial. It was 25 years ago, I would have been in brownies. So it was still quite different then. Yeah, they really recognize multi-ethnicities now and multi-faiths and they're much better at it is quite a progressive organization I think so despite it's really uh rather ugly colonial roots really you know but everything we have in Canada has a kind of is marred by that right I mean unless we're First Nations people we carry colonialism with us in some way or another so and so do they but just differently Anyway, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> well, we could talk all day about these subjects, <laughs> yeah. really. Yeah, so but it's kind of fraught, guys, but they, they, I think it's a great place for girls now. I would, you know. Well, for all our listeners out there, Nancy can be found online at nancyjocullen.net and on Twitter at nancyjocullen. Yes, I'm a very um, sporadic tweeter. <laughs> You know, I have to say. Me too. Because, I don't know, Twitter's <laughs> a strange place, but I dip in and out, so. Yeah, I'll have times where I, I, I'll spend several days, like, checking it, and then I'll fall off it for a week, just because you need a little bit of a mental break. But, oh, uh, no kidding. If you want to feel like the world's a disaster, go to Twitter. That's absolutely mm -hmm. And if you don't want to feel like the world's a disaster, stay off Twitter and don't read the news. <laughs> don't, yeah, don't look at anything really right yeah, now. <laughs> yeah. So that's basically, I, that's exactly what I'm doing too, in and out. So your novel, The Western Alienation Merit Badge, can be found at Amazon, wallsackandwind.ca, and indigo.ca. Do you yeah. have any? Well, um, your local bookstore, you can order it in if you have a local indie. Um, I worked at lots of indies and so yeah you can definitely order it and I think you can even get uh, it's available as an audiobook uh, now through ECW um, through their audio and you can uh, because it was also shortlisted for the Amazon first novel prize there's a Kindle version of it um, if you want to read it electronically but um, yeah I don't know if uh, electronic versions are in libraries of course libraries too I love the library, it's saving my <laughs> bacon this pandemic, so yeah. Wonderful, well, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, okay, thank you, have a nice day. Thanks. Bye. Yeah, Bye. Bye. Wow, Brandy, weren't those readings amazing? Absolutely, Chris. I just love having our members on to share from their work, share a little bit about who they are. I feel like this is just such a great opportunity for us and all our listeners to really get to know our members. Uh, 
I love that we had Shauna reading from a work in progress uh, and then a self-published author and a traditionally published author. You get a little bit of everything there and they were all just tremendous. So uh, thank you, Shauna, Anne, and Nancy for being here with us today. Yeah, for sure. And like I, I said during the readings, historical fiction is one of my favorite genres. So I'm really excited to have three new authors to check it. Yeah, I've also been getting into historical fiction uh, a little bit more lately. So I really liked that that's our theme for January and uh, can't wait to see what we come up with for next month. <laughs> Perfect. All right, so uh, it's time to share the news from our members. Longtime CAA member Gordon K. Jones will be participating in two live virtual author events with Bookland Press at this year's Ontario Library Association Super Conference, which is Ontario's largest book trade show. The event on February 4th from 1 to 2 p.m. will be for his latest novel, Saving Tiberius. And the second event from 1 to 2 p.m. on February 5th will feature his nonfiction book, Defending the Inland Shores. Get full details at eventscribe.net slash 2021 slash O-L-A-S-C slash searchglobal.asp. We're also excited to announce that he'll soon be a guest on our show. Yeah, that's great. I know Gordon will be awesome at those events and he'll be an excellent member to have on the show. Uh, I attended the OLA Super Conference last year. It's a really great event. Uh, it was actually the last in-person event I went to before the coronavirus isolation took hold. So I'm sure everybody who gets to go this year to the virtual one will have a great time. Now, before we go, I want to mention a new Canadian Authors Association service being offered to all our members. Our brand new member book catalog is now live on the CAA national website. Members have exclusive access to this optional user fee based service and anyone can access the catalog to buy your book, providing you with an additional opportunity to promote and sell your books. Ensure you're logged into your account before you subscribe to the service and then you just subscribe for the number of books you want to add to the catalog. Then we'll send you a link to a form to collect your book information. You enter the details for each of your books and we put all of them on the catalog ready for purchase by the public. This service has just been launched and our listings will grow over the next few weeks. So be sure to check in regularly. You can see this great new service at CanadianAuthors.org slash national slash member dash book dash catalog. What an amazing new way to sell our books, Brandy. And I actually just signed up for that this morning as a way to promote my own novel. And one of the things I love the most about it is that it helps support programming and training for Canadian authors, which gets everybody more amazing books to read. Absolutely, Chris, and allows us to offer, you know, new and great services all the time. So for sure. Well, it's time for us to call it a day. Remember, listeners, we are planning something special for when we reach that 1000 download mark. So far, we're at 625 now, maybe a little bit more. 
So help us get to the 1,000 download mark by spreading the word, liking us on your favorite social media, sharing us with your friends, and subscribing to the podcast. And that, my friends, brings us to the end of our ninth episode of Words with Writers podcast. Thank you for being with us again this month, and we will return with a new episode on Saturday, February 20th. We'll